The Guardian. I'm standing on the, uh, the, the Belfast Crumlin Road, uh, waiting for the return of the Orange Order Parade. It's uh, heavily militarised at the minute. Uh, there's officers in riot shields, lots of Land Rovers. Um, the parade hasn't even got here yet. There's two water cannon deployed in the area. The situation is quite tense. There's a large group of youths penned in to another part of our town just behind me. And uh, all in all, it's a very tense evening here in North Belfast. Bomb. I've seen a paddle bomb being thrown. First I've seen tonight. Violence surrounding the march to commemorate the Battle of the Boyne, as nationalists react to the Orange Order being allowed so close to their homes. The reporter there was The Guardian's island correspondent, Henry MacDonald, and Henry joins me now. Hello, Henry. Hello, Hugh. It sounds as if it was pretty hairy. Yes, it was. It was um, very, very uh, violent for about six hours. You had uh, an awful lot of masonry, missiles, petrol bombs, all kinds of objects being thrown at police lines, some of which were landing at our feet or over our heads. A couple of uh, photographers were injured, actually. There was also about 55 plastic baton rounds fired by the PSNI at the rioters, who were a small but very determined group of youths who were attacking police lines throughout the day from the Nationalist-Stroke Republican District. Well, I suppose we should be shot by what we've heard and what you saw earlier this week, but we're not, because it seems to be what we've been hearing from Northern Ireland for decades. But there's a peace process now, isn't there? Weren't things supposed to be different? For this week's Focus podcast, I'm going to be talking to Henry to examine the root of this violence. We'll hear from those who still believe violence is the way forward, those who suffered from it, and we'll find out what this says about the peace process and whether we're back to the dark days of the Troubles. We've got interviews with members of the Continuity IRA coming up, which are well worth listening to. But Henry, a first thought, why do these marches persist? Because they're ingrained in, if you like, Protestant stroke loyalist culture, there are thousands of marches every year, and it is worth pointing out that um, only a small minority of them are contentious, the ones that pass by or through Catholic stroke nationalist areas. Um, They've existed for for decades, if not centuries, but uh, changing demography, an area changing from being maybe predominantly Protestant to Catholic, as was the case, for example, say, in the Drum Cree March in Portadown, changes the, the social dynamic and that's why you get objection to uh, certain orange parades. They become neurologic pressure points in, in the kind of ongoing sectarian territory war that, that still exists in Northern Ireland despite the ceasefires. So as normal, we kind of dip in and dip out where we're there when there's a problem. Um, but of course, this was serious, wasn't it? 24 police officers injured on Tuesday, 22 the night before. Uh, this is some of the worst violence for years in Northern Ireland, isn't it? Well, actually, last year, in fact, in Ardoin, there were 80 police officers injured. So that puts it into some context. But I mean, it was 
I think if, if you look upon this over the last few weeks, it was very serious. It was actually kicked off by the Loyalist paramilitaries, the Ulster Volunteer Force, attacking a, a vulnerable Catholic area in East Belfast on the other side of the River Lagan. And that kind of set the tone for the rest of the marching season. So you've had three to four weeks of fairly intensive rioting, which kind of shifts around from East Belfast to Lurgan and North Armagh, where it, where it involved dissident Republicans, to North Belfast in Ardoin, where it was also uh, youths combined with some dissident Republican supporters attacking the police over the Orange Order parade passing by the Ardoin area. So it's been a couple of weeks of fairly intense violence. The rising tensions don't just limit themselves to rioting around the marching season in, in the last couple of years. Members of the newly formed Police Service of Northern Ireland have been targeted too, and in the case of Constable Stephen Carroll and Constable Ronan Kerr, um, police officers there have been killed, haven't they? They have indeed, and that's right. Earlier in the week, I met the widow of Stephen Carroll, Kate. Since her husband's death, she regularly speaks up about the human cost of violence in Northern Ireland, and I spoke to her about the recent sectarian street disorder and asked her what her message was for those involved. Well, I would ask them to consider firstly what they're doing to the families of people like myself, what they're doing to me. Um, I would just think to myself, why would you want to indoctrinate your child into doing that? If it was my child out there doing that, I would have him in and he would be in the house for a week until he was taught a lesson. When you see reports of more violence around, more terrorism, how does it make you feel? I mean, given that you, you know, what you thought was unbearable, that this could happen again, happen to Constable Carr's family, obviously. Mm. Yes, it absolutely sickens and disillusions me to think that there are people out there that are just, they don't want peace to come about. I mean, the politicians, can they fight everybody? You know what I mean? There's, the majority of the people in Northern Ireland don't want this violence. Um, the, most of the politicians now either, they don't want it. You know what I mean? So can, can these dissidents and these men of violence, can they fight everybody in this country? I don't think so. What have you been trying to do in terms of uh, coping in the last couple of years and how, how much support have you had? Well, I've had quite a bit of support from family, friends and uh, from the police, obviously. And, um, you know, I've been trying to talk to people, trying to turn their heads away from violence, uh, talking to young people if I can and talking to different people to try and make them understand what it's like to go through a death by, you know, violence and what it's like to live with, uh, uh, you know, if it was cancer or something that was taking my loved one away, you would think to yourself, well, you know, it's inevitable that it, he's, he's going to die and you would be used to that. But for someone to go out doing a day's work to help a community and then to be brought back home in a box, it's, it's beyond words. I just um, find it hard to find words for it. It's Kate Carroll there, and obviously it's very brave of her to speak out. I suppose it puts people in a position where they almost feel they have to to make social commentary. Well, I mean, Kate has even gone to the extreme of offering to speak to some of the people involved in Republican dissident violence. She's even prepared to sit down with them and ask them what the hell they're doing and you know what do they think they're going to achieve. Uh, for her to be able to do that, to be able to sort of say she could sit in the same room as people who either justified or organised their husband's killing. I think it's an example of how people at the sharp end are so concerned that this thing could go backwards. Uh, so I think it is 
it is it is becoming a much more seriously considered problem over the summer and especially after the recent disorder. Of course you talked about and she talked about young people and the worries there are of young people getting involved in this. Why are there so many young people getting caught up in this trouble? I think it's 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 a number of things. Firstly, you have a generation growing up who did not know how bad the actual troubles were. They're reared on a diet of in either community in working class areas in particular. Uh, of uh, the past struggles being somehow glorious or heroic, even though they weren't really in reality. But um, they're told about these great sort of armed actions of the past and recent past, but they didn't take part in it. Combine that with um, socioeconomic problems, and I think ultimately also the recession will play a part here because you're having a vast underclass of young people who are at the bottom of the social scale in Northern Ireland and have little chance of... uh, jobs in the future they're disaffected the areas like Ardoyne and places like Craigavon where I visited last week as well very much places that have been left behind by the peace process in terms of the economy and, and society so an underclass is it as serious as that y- yes and uh, there is an underclass of of, of slew of, of people who especially young people who have no real uh, investment in the current political process they're alienated from it and uh I think from, from that well, armed organisations could easily draw forth. Of course, there's a peace process um, underway. Do they not feel part of that? I think once upon a time, perhaps that generation did. I'm saying um, the majority of young people do not get involved in that kind of street disorder. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, cross fertilisation between the communities, a lot, a lot going on that's positive. Uh, I can think of a project in, in, in a part of central Belfast where a ca- Catholic kids are being taken to a a football ground in East Belfast, which is uh, has a predominantly Protestant support, for instance. But there's there's a, a, a minority of disaffected youths, particularly in working class Republican areas, who are alienated from the political process, who now see Sinn Féin as indeed the establishment, and who do not listen to them anymore. And what was very telling being on the Crumlin Road in Ardoin the other night was very veteran IRA members who would have been revered in their community, ex-prisoners, people who were involved in breaking out of long cash, the maze, they were not being listened to, they weren't being heeded to when, when they were saying to younger people, go home, close the door, or peace, or demonstrate in a peaceful manner, don't be destroying your community. They, they simply were not listened to. The, this new underclass of alienated youth were out there attacking the police with the ferocity, which would have surprised a lot of people had they seen it up front as I did. Now, the riots may in fact act to radicalise a lot of those young people who feel disaffected. Before the main 12th of July march and the Orange Order parade that passed Ardoin, I spoke to Father Gary Dunnigan, the parish priest of the area, who knows the community better than anyone. The criticism we will face is if this was Toxteth, you know, or if this was somewhere in, in Britain, that uh, what would happen was Baton Rounds would never actually be engaged with, and yet we haven't even seen the, the feeder parade going through yet and already we have seen water cannon deployed and, and riot gear now um, I didn't see what they were initially reacting to because um, uh, but I'm just going on the words of people who are not from the more militant end but the more moderate end and to find them uh, coming out of this kind of criticism is a bit depressing because mm-hmm. now we face the ordinary decent folk who won't come next or near uh, the road or near marching are now already hemmed in like they've never been before. Um, Father, can I ask questions about young people? I mean, there's a fear in areas, I guess, about young people being sucked into organisations yes. that aren't on ceasefire. What does in days like this do in terms of, in terms of you know, radicalising those kids and making them more militant? 
I think there's, you know, there is a lot of young people in this area, you know, who are very frustrated with the lack of infrastructure because of the economic situation that we find ourselves in, unemployment, uh, there's a lot of uh, issue around drug use, alcohol abuse, and when an area finds itself in the build-up to today, you will find that a lot of these young people have either been on drugs or on, in drink, and a lot of them too have been involved in anti-social behaviour right throughout the year, and once this contentious parade is allowed to go through, then basically what happens then is it creates the vacuum in order for them to move into it. So there are some young people who will just operate on, on the basis of going out and rioting and then they'll do something else. So I suppose that's just a normal criminality you might expect. But of course there are others as well who, who will maybe progress to what one might call the armed struggle and get involved in, in, in those extremist groups and I suppose that's very serious too. Yes indeed. I met up with a young man who was convicted of continuity IRA activity. He actually served time in prison recently for terrorist offences including possessing explosives and he has no regrets. I believe in the the fight that's going on. I do. It's it's hundred percent. And even though everyone's saying that you know it's peace now and we don't, you know that kind of things, a thing of the past. You don't you don't obviously agree with that analysis. Well, tell me why. Um, because then there's still a British presence here. There's still under British rule, and as far as I'm concerned, there will never be peace unless there's total British withdrawal. Do you not think the majority of people have, uh, the argument will go, well, the majority of people have voted for the settlement that we have? So why are people, why did people like you go to prison and people who may follow you in your footsteps? So why do you think that is? Well, at the end of the day, a lot of people would say, said about settle flat there, but there's, there's also a lot of people not prepared to settle as, as long as they're British rule. Let's just back up uh, just a bit. Uh, he's from the Continuity IRA. Tell us a bit about them. Who are they? Well, they're the oldest of the dissident hardline Republican groups. They were actually founded in the late 80s after a split within Sinn Féin uh, over the recognition of the Southern Irish Parliament, believe it or not. And they've been, they have been—they—they were boosted after the, the IRA ceasefire of 1994 in terms of they came to the fore. They are very much of a very hardline, ideologically driven Republican group, and they were responsible for killing the first ever... PSNI officer a couple of years ago that, who we've just mentioned, Stephen Carroll uh, they link up and sometimes are not too friendly with the other dissident groups, the Real IRA and Ugly Nour in a smaller group very effective group in terms of uh, bomb making capability but they are nonetheless all small relatively unrepresentative of their community but they do exist and I suppose if they're chaotic, that's almost as dangerous as if they're organised. I mean, wh wh where are they on that scale? Well, they are organised and they do have a political philosophy, but it, you know, one could argue, especially in the Irish Republic, that it's disengaged from the reality of po polit politics in, in, in the Republic in particular. But they exist in little pockets, like such as North Armagh, North, North Belfast, Derry. Uh, they do have a presence and they, they do cause, you know, occasional problems in terms of security. It's very akin in many ways until the recent ceasefire of Etta. Etta in the Basque country was involved in, if you like, sort of occasional flashes of violence every year. They would do some something spectacular and, and then they would run, run away back into the cave, so to speak, and, and k k keep their heads down. This is this kind of this is a new this is kind of a new type of terrorism. It's infrequent. It's not like the twenty four seven terrorism of the troubles that we had with the IRA and the their loyalist enemies. And what about Sinn Féin? Because they've opted for the, the ballot box rather than the bullet. But how do they deal with uh, groups like the Continuity IRA? Very difficult. I mean, it has to be something very important has to be said here. The overwhelming majority of nationalists support Sinn Féin. Uh, Sinn Féin represent nationalist, nationalism, the, the, big, the biggest nationalist party in Northern Ireland. Most people agree with our analysis that 
the time for the armed campaign is over, the time for politics is now. But their problem is, you know, in the past, when they had the muscle of the provisional IRA behind them, they could curb the the presence of these dissident groups in the area with physical intimidation, which which is what they did. I mean, they killed people during the ceasefire. I'm thinking of a real IRA member killed in West Belfast in 1999 for standing up to local provisionals in the Ballymurphy area. But that, 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 those days have gone. They can't do that. The paradox is, as they as they further embrace peaceful constitutional politics, they can't be seen to be policing their areas physically uh, against the dissidents, and it, it creates the space in which dissidents can get recruits. Because it means then that they have to do it... Um, for capitalising on, on, on the level of respect they might have. And as you were saying, uh, earlier in the week, they were seeking to do that and it wasn't really working. Um, do, y- do young people in areas like the Ardoin feel that the Sinn Féin represent them? Well, I mean, again, the majority of people who vote in the Ardoin vote for Sinn Féin. That's an extremely important. But I go back to this recalcitrant minority um, who are very militant. I mean, I'll tell you how militant they are. When they were being doused with water cannon and hit with plastic bullets, one of them ran, I saw him with my own eyes, running with a screwdriver towards a huge police vehicle and sticking the screwdriver into the vehicle while plastic bullets were firing over his head to try and disable the the, the water cannon vehicle. You know, that's how brazen and sort of militant they are. But they, I think, are, are lost to Sinn Féin, but they are still a minority. It is important to say that the overwhelming vote for for Sinn Féin in that area it proves that most people still back the party. But of course the continuity are you know, they're relentlessly hard line. You met another of them, didn't you? Well, I met another of the, their convicted members, someone who's been to prison for the continuity IRA. Uh, I put it to him that many, including Sinn Féin, feel that groups like the one he has belonged to no longer have the support of the people. Well, I'd say quite simply that there is support here. And as I said, we've seen it in the uh, last number of months. After the, the in the aftermath of the killing of the Lungkir in Throne, that the the blame was put on and actually the claim responsibility was put on former members, recently former members of the provisional IRA. So therefore, that shows in itself that top and high-ranking provisionals uh, are are becoming disgruntled with this so-called peace process. You know, it's not a peace process; it's a normalisation policy of British rule in Ireland. So therefore, Republicans will resist that. And the support has grown on a daily basis for armed struggle and alternative Republican parties. So are you opposed to negotiations with Sinn Féin at the minute in terms of bringing about a, a resolution? Well, speaking to Sinn Féin, you know, now at this time, you know, you're speaking to British ministers in a puppet government. You know, when the time comes for anybody to speak to the British I believe they'll speak to them in Westminster they'll speak to them wherever they have to I see no merits in speaking to uh, Sinn Féin former Republicans who now have openly and publicly stated that they are informers you know uh, their actions after the the shootings of the soldiers in Mazarin and the shooting of uh, Stephen Carl was evident when they stood with the head of the British forces here the, the police force in, in the north and uh, the leader of the DUP and condemned Republicans as theatres to Ireland. And for for anti peace process Republicans, call them what you want. What do incidents like what goes on in places like Ardoing on um, in the marching season? What does that do? Does it boost the ranks? Or well, obviously, again, that's where you know the nationalist areas are are being put under siege in order to force loyalist and uh, loyalist bands through the area. 
uh, and the people that's forcing these bonds to the area is the RUC, PSNA, call them what you will. You know, so certainly, again, National Service is being put under siege mentality. Uh, we just we seen the other week with the attacks uh, in Belfast from loyalist paramilitaries. So again, that that puts people in them areas in under siege mentality. And finally, I mean, in the past, you know, right through various Republican campaigns, England, Britain was always a a target. Do you think it still should be? Well, I'm not in the position to say what what is the target and what isn't the target. I'm talking about principle. Uh, certainly, it'll always be a potential. You know, it is the the government that's sending our forces over here. It's the government that's occupying our land. So it's always a potential that it is a target, uh, and it's no different from past generations. So. Uh, and my view on it is, yeah, it's a legitimate target. So there aren't many of them, but they seem to be pretty determined. It doesn't look like there's going to be a solution to this anytime soon, does there? Well, they're not going to go away um, in the short to medium term, and it does show the durability of ideology in, in politics sometimes. But uh, it, it has to be put in context. They're still a minority. They still don't have mass support. And I don't think they're going to. But nonetheless, recalcitrant minorities can cause trouble. You've only got to look around Europe in the 70s and 80s with, with Euro-terrorism. So uh, it, it's a problem that the security forces are going to have to deal with primarily. And it's worth pointing out that in the Irish Republic, the Garda Síochána have been very successful in, in, in closing down a lot of uh, operations and attacks by these groups. Because he talked about a threat to the British mainland. Was that just big talk? No, well, I think he's talking in principle. I don't think he knows any, any detail. I think there's, there's, there's no chance of that. But I think it, there is this always this, this view that uh, transmitting the message, and that's what ultimately terrorism is, it's a transmission of messages. Uh, the biggest message of all is if you can deliver it on the doorstep of who you perceive as your enemy, and they perceive Britain as the enemy. So therefore, they will just follow Republican tradition through the years, which has been to attack uh, in principle, political, whatever else targets in, in, in England. How do you think ordinary people in Belfast will react when they hear him talking? Um, because often you find, find that extremism only really has any traction if people who wouldn't plant bombs or, or throw petrol bombs agree with the general philosophies. But when people listen to him, will they be thinking, well, maybe I wouldn't go as far as him, but I agree with him? Or will they be thinking, no, we don't want that, we've, we've, we've moved on from there? I think the majority will 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 throw their hands up in despair and say, "Oh no, here we go again." I don't think they want to return to the uh, the ways of the past. That's evident from the voting patterns, from you know people on the national side massively endorsing the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, but the problem is, you do have a younger generation of youths coming up who I say are alienated socially and economically, who have no uh, collective memory of what it was actually like during the Troubles. It's older people who really are vehement in their determination not for things to slide back and they I think do represent the minority of as you say ordinary people. I was interested to see a quote from the DUP MP Nigel Dodds who was saying that uh, what we really need to have or what really needs to happen there is uh, shared space. How close or how far are they away from achieving that? Very far away. Um, There are up to I think 80 separation barriers disconnecting. Are these the peace walls? Yes, the peace walls, so-called glorious misnomer, that one, um, keeping communities apart. And uh, the the lack of shared space is a big problem in education, in sport, 
in cultural areas and indeed socially. So that's the strange thing about the situation, isn't it? In that there's probably less violence than there's ever been. There are now more of these peace walls separating the various communities than there were in 1994 at the time of the ceasefire. There are now 80, there were maybe 20, 20 something peace walls at the time of the ceasefires. In fact, here's an irony for you and I sort of a story I did at the time. September the 1st, 1994, maybe what, 12 hours into the IRA ceasefire, construction began, drilling began for the foundations for a brand new peace wall that was being built to cut a public park in half to create essentially a park for Protestants and a park for Catholics because there had been so much street disorder in the park, clashes between Catholic and Protestant youths in a part of North Belfast. A beautiful old park built by the city's Victorian fathers had to be separated and that happened just as the IRA ceasefire was kicking in. I suppose it is a place of ironies. Um, So tell me, let's sum up in a way. Uh, I was very interested in the piece that you wrote um, for the Guardian's comment is free section in, in which you contrasted the number of people who've been involved in, in, in rioting um, in, in Belfast with the number of people who were at, I think, a, a marine, a maritime festival. And you were saying that let's not get this out of proportion. Um, and of course, that's often the danger, isn't it, in that uh, reporters come from the mainland and we don't, you don't really know the lie of the land. And so if you see a bit of violence, you do blow it out of proportion. Of course, as you said, those pictures go around the world. So... If people around the world are thinking, well, we've seen this violence and it just shows us that things are as bad as ever they were there, uh, is that the truth of it? It doesn't seem to be from what you, from what you were saying. These uh, places where the violence is erupting are isolated. They're, they're in pockets. But, you know, 24 hours before the rioting kicked off on Monday, I, w- I was in a, a, a lovely market in, in the centre of Belfast, in George's Market, where... Not only everybody from every religion in, in Belfast was mixing and enjoying traditional music and different all kinds of arts and crafts stalls and food. There were people from all over the world who settled in Belfast. There was a, there were stalls from, from cooks from Lebanon. There were people from Africa, people from Spain and Poland, who live in Belfast. So you know there was a whole multi-ethnic swirl and mix, which has been a very positive development in recent years with more people, new people coming into the city. So I think you do have to put it into context. The problem always is not just about um, the image distortion with, with violent scenes, which are quite picture-rich for the, for the newscasters and television, but also the fact that it's, it's, if the violence starts to seep out of the areas where it's concentrated and where it's penned into, and this is where, of course, where it, where it t- turns some street disorder to terrorism, and that's the biggest issue around at the minute and it's whether not only the security forces but the politicians and church leaders and trade unions can get together and try to counteract it but it's going to be very very difficult because you have a structural fault running through society sectarianism that has not been um, properly addressed uh, since we got the peace process and power sharing back but do you as someone who lives there think um, this is not good a lot of it's very bad but in fact things overall are getting better well, come on. I mean, I, I I grew up in the centre of Belfast in the 1970s, where there was explosions every day. My my own house was blown up because we lived beside a pub. Where there were a campaign of pub bombings by both sides. I mean, this was a daily occurrence. You had soldiers on the streets with with rifles, and we had uh, you know raids and and daily 24/7 trouble. It's nothing like that now. It's it, it it's become concentrated and isolated. Uh, you know, you do have to put it not only into a historical context, but a social one too, that it's not, it's cut off from the mainstream of most people's lives, whereas in the Troubles, everyone was affected by that. 
And that's a thoughtful note to end on and something we should remember when we see those pictures from Belfast on the evening news. But that's about all we have time for. You've been listening to a Guardian Focus podcast. Many thanks to Henry MacDonald. I'm Hume Yor. The producer this week was Peter Sale. Thanks for listening and goodbye. great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.